Today on the show, we're going to be talking about code switching, and we'll also be discussing video games, good, bad, or just plain fun. This is Doctor versus Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, we're going to be talking about video games. But first, we're going to be talking about codes. And I mean codes, not like in video game codes that the software engineers do to program our favorite video games. But we're going to be talking about code switching. When you say stuff like that, I think you should probably say to the audience, a nerd alert before you say things like video codes. I do feel, Asif, that your level of energy is borderline giddiness because I think you're so excited about video games and this discussion. But yeah, let's talk about code switching first. This is a big one and it is a... Man, it is a loaded, loaded subject, even for someone like me who doesn't fully have to go through it every day. So do you want to talk about what you know about code switching or can I just break it down? Well, why don't I start off with a letter from a listener. I have a listener letter right here. So I'm going to read this out. The most interesting thing is that we actually haven't given out any mailing address yet. So yeah. I was going to say that also, that looks like a shredded piece of paper that somebody drew some cartoons on, on the back. Well, I'm not going to be able to speak. This is from a listener. He says the following, Hey guys, love the pod. And I think pod is short for podcast here. Mm-hmm. Okay. But quick question. I notice you guys say each other's names differently. For example, Asif says Ali, but he says it differently. He says Ali. And Ali says Asif's name like Asif. So what's up with that? Okay. First of all, this alleged letter is terrific. And we always love hearing from the fans. Also, good on you, Asif, for reading all of that when you probably couldn't tell which Ali or Ali or Ali was being mentioned or Asif or Asif. But right there is something that hits to the heart of code switching. You sometimes have to be different people for different people, right? And I think I will give you a definition of code switching. If you're not familiar with this, broadly code switching is referring to an adjustment of one style of speech or appearance or behavior that will optimize the comfort of others in exchange. And that's the key here, in exchange for fair treatment, quality service, and employment opportunities. Now, I think, Asif, you and I can both agree that we haven't bore the hard brunt of this. We can't speak to the African-American experience or African-Canadian or Black experience tied to this, which is quite horrific and does take a psychological and emotional toll on people. But you and I have a different thing where it's just our names are different for different people. Right. And so when you look at the examples, a lot of the examples you see in culture are actually the African-American experience. And so the examples that I think about is the movie, Sorry to Bother You by Boots Riley. I don't know if you've seen that movie. It came out a couple of yeah, years ago. Starring Lakeith Stanfield, who, by the way, phenomenal actor, by the way, very, very Amazing. underrated 
This guy's fantastic. And right now that's on our list, the latest one, the Judas. Um, and the Black Messiah. Yeah, I've got to see that, another award-winning movie that he's been in. In any case, yes. Right, so he plays a, a black telemarketer who adopts a white accent to succeed at his job. The white voice is by David Cross, which is hilarious in itself. Mm. There is, a, a, by the way, unrelated, a crazy twist halfway through that movie, which you'll never see coming. It's insane it makes the movie crazy but that's the conceit at the beginning is him switching his voice the other things i think about there was a video in like 2012 of barack obama and it's him in a basketball locker room and people were pointing out how he greets a white assistant coach differently than he greets the great nba player kevin durant who is African-American. Right. But I mean, I think a lot was made out of that video. You know, you said it right in your description, the great Kevin Durant. I mean, one of the top 10 basketball players of this last decade is going to be greeted differently than a white assistant coach that hardly anybody knows the name of. I mean, I think a lot of it was made. But when we talk about Lakeith Stanfield and his role in this movie, Sorry to Bother You, I mean, this is Danny Glover, who's kind of like an old sort of mentor, or at the very least, he's an old veteran of this telemarketing marketing scene he comes up and coaches him and says no you're not going to sell anything mm -hmm. with your normal voice you got to white it up basically and then he does this you know david cross's voice as you said which is maybe one of the most stereotypically white voices around and so they poke some fun at it and they have some fun with it but it's a very very serious subject so you may have seen this sketch by key and peel and it's great hearing those guys and seeing them do their sketch comedy because of course they each come from a mixed background, mixed race background. So it's interesting to see their perceptions. So in this one sketch, Keegan-Michael Kay is on the street talking to his spouse about getting some theater tickets. Because you're my wife and you love the theater and uh, it's your birthday. <laughs> Great. And while he's talking on the street, Jordan Peele comes over, also just talking in his vicinity. And you see how Keegan-Michael Kay switches the way he's talking seats that are still left in the dress circle. So if you want to, um, me to get them theater tickets right now, I'm going to do it right What's now. What's up, dog? I'm about five minutes away. Yeah. Okay, yeah, cool. No, they all yeah. good singers. They all good singers. Yeah, son. Mm -hmm. Nah, man, I'm about, I'm telling you, man, I'm about to cross the street. And then they both talk for a few minutes, and then Jordan Peele walks away, and then, of course, he switches back to his natural voice. So he got that Oh, my lot. God, Christian, I almost totally just got mugged right now. <laughs> so it's this idea when... African-American people are around each other. Maybe you speak a certain way, and then when you're not, you speak a different way, right? That's kind of what they're getting at. I mean, they have a hilarious take on this idea, but as you were saying before, it can have the psychological impact, right? So there's an article from the Harvard Business Review from several years ago. The, the first author is Courtney McClooney, and they talked about the cost of code switching and this idea that having African-American people who have to act white, in quotation marks, at work, it depletes their cognitive resources, and it can hinder their performance, and it contributes to burnout because they're not being authentic in themselves. Mm -hmm. So they feel they have to do this to advance. And, and I just want to be clear, we're not trying to say we know what it's like at all to be an African-American who has to code switch, right? That's not what of we're trying not. to say or talk about. And so I guess it goes back to the question posed by this person who wrote into us. What about this accent that we're talking about and what about changing the way we're pronouncing our names to fit in line with certain people or a background that's really what we want to talk about right 
Yeah, and I think we're quite lucky. I do have friends who have longer South Indian, Sri Lankan names, and they've had to. So I, you know, I won't name anybody, but let's say it's Vijayanathan, which has more vowels and letters than people are used to be seeing. Cut it down to Vijay. All of a sudden, true story, job offers came where they weren't coming at all before. So you have to think about these things on your resume and all that. For me, I'm an Ali Hassan. If you know anything about Muslims at all, you know that's a Muslim name. Either you're down with it or not. I've made peace with it. For some people, that's going to be a put off. For some people, it's going to be like, I don't care. And to be honest, I'd rather work with the people who don't care. So it's kind of, I've made my peace with this entire thing. But when it comes to the pronunciation of the name, you would never think a three-letter name like Ali would have this many pronunciations. And I wouldn't even blame you. But first of all, the name is, it's a Middle Eastern name. It comes out of the Middle East. It's an Arabic name. So it is actually pronounced in the Middle East, Ali, Ali. It's a guttural A. I can barely do that three times without sort of dry heaving. So that's a difficult <laughs> thing for me to get out. And so I've had Arabs tell me, why do you say your name is Ali? It's Ali, Ali. And I'm like, man, that's like a part-time job coaching people on how to get that guttural A. I'm not a speech dialect coach. I'm just going to leave it at however people pronounce it. You know, you want to call me Ali? Great for you. Now, my parents, Pakistani Muslims, Indians as well, call me Ali. That is like almost spelled U-H-L-I. And the last name is not Hassan, it's Hassan. It's almost like H-U-H, like, huh, and then S-N with no vowels there, Hassan. So, I mean, I don't have any particular need to hear that. And, and a lot of people go, well, I want to pronounce your name properly. Like, how would your mother pronounce it? I'm like, well, my mother would say Ali, but I don't want you calling me Ali because I'm going to hear my mom and I'm going to think I did something wrong. So then there's a whole other just... It doesn't bother me at all how it's pronounced. And I think you've had a similar experience, Asif, where, yes, you're Asif to me because that's what your parents called you and I've known you since you were born. But somewhere along the way, you were happier having ass right there in your name. I mean, everybody has their own particular preferences for their name. So Asif, that's what you call me. It's what my parents call me. Because as you said, that's how you were introduced to me or I was introduced to you when we were kids. Like, that's just the way it is. But even my wife calls me Asif. She doesn't say Asif. And I don't really mind it. I have some friends who call me as if. And that's just, again, the way that they pronounce it. Some people put a Z in there, as if, as if. It's okay. I don't actually mind. It's just the way things are. There's certain things I can't stand where people say Asif. They make that I long. I go insane. Please don't do that. And it's always weird when Hilarious. nobody else does that, that one person out of the crowd says your name like that. Like, what are you doing here? Rogue. They're going rogue. Well, this is the interesting thing, right? Like everybody has their line. So my father was a teacher for most of his career. Professor Hassan, Hassan, Hassan. We didn't have any problem with that, even though it's not Hassan. It is technically Hassan. My mother never had a problem with that. But when I came home from elementary school and told my mom that I met a kid named Farhan, she was immediately offended on his behalf. It's not Farhan, it's Farhan. Now, am I at age 10 going to go back and tell a bunch of white kids, by the way, guys, you're pronouncing his <laughs> name wrong. It's Farhan. I know he says it's Farhan, but let's not listen to him. He's stupid and doesn't know. How, you know what I mean? Like, come on. So it's weird. We all have our, our lines and we're lucky to have them. You know, a few years ago, I was interviewing Hassan Minhaj on a program called Q. I was sitting in on Q as the guest host, and we had a really interesting conversation about this subject. For him, the pronunciation of his name is important. And he has this famous story where he was on Ellen 
And he walked Ellen back and said, listen, this is how you pronounce my name. It's Hassan Minhaj, you know, say it with me. And his father was in the audience and he tells a story about his father just being mortified on the way home. His father was like, why would you waste Ellen's time like that? Why would you do that? And he goes, because it's important, dad. And I was telling Hassan in this interview, I was like, I don't know if it's that important to me that people get my name exactly right. And his thing was like, it is, man, you know, it is. And the truth is, I don't, you know, I've been called Ali as long as I can remember by people I love. And it has a positive connotation. Ali works for me coming from the right person and Ali works for me coming from the right person. So I'm very flexible on that issue. And I don't disparage those who correct, you know, it's not Kirstine, it's Kirsten. Okay, fine. That's what you need in life. That's fine. I just don't need that. That's never really been particularly important. And Asif, you've gone through a similar thing where you have at least two names that I know about, Asif and Asif. Yeah, exactly. And I don't make a big deal about it either. I think people can lose their sleep over it and call these things microaggressions. When people say your name improperly, I don't know if it is. I think Hassan Minaj has a good point when you're talking to him about that. And it came up recently with the new vice president, right, of the United States. I was totally thinking about that. Yeah. Now, that was a vindictive white man being like, Kamala, Kamala, whatever she calls herself. I mean, at that point, it's like you are totally being a jerk on purpose. There's no doubt about that. Absolutely. But I must admit, I called her Kamala Harris up until it became quite clear. And of course, as time went on, Kamala is the name of the professional wrestler, the Ugandan giant who died in the fall. And then, in fact, a day or two later, Kamala Harris was announced as the running mate for Joe Biden. So now I separate those two in my mind and I know one is for the professional wrestler, one is for the vice president, but it's true. And I think it's the intent that people do it, right? If you're being malicious or not even trying to pronounce someone's name properly and just being like, I don't care, whatever. I mean, right. That's a bit weak. But my problem is, is that when people are trying too hard and do that thing, like, <laughs> let me know how your mother pronounces it. I'm like, please don't. You're, now you're trying too hard. So there's a fine balance. It's whatever people want. But yeah, there is some switching that happens. And it's a very common thing to have heard that, especially when we were growing up as brown guys being referred to as coconuts or Oreos, you know, and Asian friends would be like, we're bananas. So on the outside, we're this, but on the inside, we're white. And it's a common thing trying to be one thing for some people and another thing for some people. But when it starts taking a psychological toll, because you're literally living a lie that's when it deserves a lot of attention, and which it has gotten recently, and it's a good thing. People should be aware of this. As you're saying, there's different levels, right? I think that level is the most extreme where it's affecting your soul almost, having to do that. And then mm. there's a level that we're talking about with the names. And then I can think of even perhaps a more minor level. Like I had a friend who moved to England years ago when we were in our 20s. She moved there. And when I went to go visit, I'd see her and she would speak with a British accent, even though she was Canadian. And I'd ask mm -hmm. why she did that. And she's like, it's not for any other reason other than I don't like having to explain myself every time I talk to somebody with my Canadian accent. They're like, oh, you, are you visiting? No, no, I'm actually living here now permanently. Oh, okay. Well, when did you move here? She's like, it's just much easier to just put on a British accent and nobody asks you any questions, right? So that's the most minor level where you're just switching it, but just to make your life go more smoothly, essentially. I see a flaw in that, Asif. I see a flaw because that's assuming that nobody asks any follow-up questions, right? <laughs> 
Oh, you have a British accent? They, great. End of it. Where did you grow up? Where in Britain? What's your, uh, my mum's from Lancashire. Now you're doing a whole fraudulent thing too, which is equally exhausting, I think, no? Anyway, you know, I will say this. When you're talking about accents, I think about a good buddy of ours who's from Trinidad. I mean, born in Nova Scotia, but family from Trinidad. And he and his brother and his sister, all Canadian-born, all speak with what you would call, you know, Canadian slightly maritime accents, even in the case of his older brother. But as soon as they get together, the Trinidadian accent comes out. Boy, you hungry or what? Boy, you want to eat something? And this kind of stuff. And, you know, you could on the surface, and I think I was taken aback at first. I was like, what? Did you just transform into somebody else? That's not your real accent. But I've come to terms with the fact that sometimes an accent plays almost the same role as a language does. It's a place of comfort. It's like an old, comfortable sweater you're putting on. It's like the support of your language, your community, your accent. So even though it's English, I think that accent sometimes plays the role of language too. That's my thoughts on the subject. I'm sure stuff's been written. I can't be the first guy who ever thought that, but it is something interesting to watch for sure. Well, it's true. And a lot of this, if people are interested, it's the linguistics literature, that whole field of linguistics. They talk a lot about this idea of code switching and how people switch back and forth. So they're kind of the experts. But again, a lot of it has been brought up recently with regards to race. There's a great NPR podcast actually called Code Switch, where they talk about these issues regarding race. So I think when it comes down to you and I, I'm okay with it, this different pronunciation of our name. And let's just say, we'll be honest, if you're pronouncing our names improperly, we'll just let you know. Yeah. I might not even. I might just let it slide and rather have somebody else say to them, that's not how you pronounce his name, and make them feel embarrassed elsewhere, you know? Not directly. I got stuff to do. Huh? I spend my half my life correcting people. Come on. All right, let's switch things up, turn things around. We are going to talk about something dear to your heart, Asif, very much so. And again, we've talked about this before. If anyone's listened to our origin story episode, we talked about how I was always big into stuff. Then you got into stuff and then I got out of stuff and you did not get out. I just don't have the, I don't stick with things is what I'm learning about myself. I mean, I should have known that already, but video games was a huge part of my life. Like my mother yelled her throat hoarse, calling me up for dinner many, many nights of my life. But I wouldn't come up because I was like, no, I still level six of Mario. You don't understand how important this is. Like my Nintendo game, you know, that was everything. Can't believe I still have thumbs left after the years of playing that. But I got out of video games. And now I got so far out that I haven't really had my children get into video games. You know, my sons in particular are pretty sporty. My girls are a little bit more nerdy. Video games hasn't been their thing. Especially my eldest reads a lot. Books are her big thing. Obviously, they're on social media. The boys, it's like movies and outdoor or indoor activities, sporty activities. But I keep thinking about how, and this is how this came about with you and I, this conversation many months ago, where I was like, am I doing my children a disservice? Because kids, that is what they talk about. They talk about Fortnite, or they did talk about Fortnite. They talk about that other building the worlds. What is that kind of... um, Minecraft? Minecraft, exactly. They talk about this is the part of their language. It's like back when sitcoms were everything and you come to work and you've not heard or seen friends. People are like, what? You don't know who Ross is? Are you serious? I feel like that's what I'm doing with my kids. I'm leaving them out of like <laughs> popular conversation. But 
our video games and the use of video games and the playing of video games and the time spent playing video games and, and everything else associated with that, is that useful and beneficial enough that I should get my children on video games? Should I buy them a video game? And that's what I put to you right now. So it's an interesting point, right? And of course, we're talking about older kids. Definitely screen time should be minimal for kids under age two. No kid under age two should really be playing a video game. You can't hold your head up. You shouldn't be playing a video game. <laughs> exactly. So we're talking about older kids. And, you know, it's interesting. The statistics show that 97% of U.S. boys and girls play video games. Oh, that just makes me feel so much worse for my children. <laughs> Raising them like pariahs. Unbelievable. What a monster I am. Okay. So 97 is huge. One question is, could they be actually good for you? And so there's a really great book by this author, Stephen Johnson, came out several years ago. It's called Everything Bad is Good for You. And what he does in the book is he goes through TV shows and movies and video games and explains how they're so much more advanced than they used to be. And they actually might be good for you. So he gives a couple examples. So one example he gives is this video game, which I never played, but it's the legend of Zelda. And it's a spinoff of legend of Zelda called the wind Walker. And in it, there's a quest to find something called the pearl of din. Okay. So normally in a video game, like Pac-Man, what's your objective? Uh, move around the maze, eat those little dots, and then eat the power-ups to eat the ghost, right? And avoid the ghosts when you don't have the power-up, right? That's basically it. The complicated nature of a game like the Zelda game is you have to do several things now. So you have to locate items that you need to get the Pearl of Din, and then you have to get it from some islanders. So you have to help these islanders solve their problem. And to solve the problem, you need to cheer up a prince, and to cheer up the prince, you need to get a letter from a girl. And what the, to get the letter from the girl, you have to find the girl in the village. So these are all different levels. And what the author, Stephen Johnson, talks about, he calls this telescoping, right? Because it's like one quest on top of another and top of another. But if you collapse them all, it's like you collapse a telescope, right? And they all kind of fit into each other. So what he says is you're doing one quest, which is finding the princess in the village, but your brain is also thinking about, okay, but this is a bigger quest to cheer this guy up. And this is a bigger quest to get the pearl. It's the Russian nesting dolls of quests over here. That's right. And so you have all these different ideas in your mind and you have to keep them all straight. Like what's your major overarching quest of this video game? And what are these sub quests? So his argument is that that's good for your brain because you're keeping all this in. And in fact, when you look at some outcomes and studies that have looked at these types of things, a lot of these games actually do help. They help with problem-solving skills because the kids who are playing after way different options and the information they have and make a strategy. So these are role-playing games, kind of like Zelda and others, strategy games, they help with that. There's also some evidence that they help with what's called intrinsic motivation. So I don't know if you've heard, there's a video game that's came out a while ago called Dark Souls. I've never played it, but... That's the one super, super difficult, apparently. Super difficult. I, like I said, I've never no. played it, but apparently just getting to the next stage, you feel so good. And because you were able to accomplish something that is almost impossible to do. And every stage is grinding away to get to it. So these are kind of examples. And of course, we know that visual spatial capabilities, tracking multiple objects, rotating objects, you know, when you do those intelligence tests, when you're a kid, you have to rotate an object in your mind. And how would it look if you rotated this object sure. nine degrees? I suck yeah, at yeah. that. But these kids who play video games are also bad. That's interesting. So there is some possibility that they actually might be good for you. Okay, but let's talk about the other, the things that 
Now, I don't know if this is just reactionary or what, how video games get blamed for when violence happens. There's that argument, Mm -hmm. attaching video games to, okay, that's why. I remember, you know, even my buddy as an adult was playing Grand Theft Auto, and I was like, this is... Even though we were in our 20s, I was like, this is brutal. And then the other thing is the addiction. You mentioned the screen time off the top. It's not always that easy to, on my son's soccer team, there was a kid who dropped out of soccer because his grandmother couldn't pull him away from Fortnite or whatever it is. So tell me about those issues. Right. So, well, if we look at aggression, and so we've talked about before how if you want to kind of see what the literature as a whole suggests, you want to look at what's called a meta-analysis. And that takes all the studies that have been done, puts them together, and then you kind of analyze them and see what you find. And so there's a good article uh, a couple of years ago in a journal called PNAS, and the main author of that article was Anna Prescott, and they did this meta-analysis. If you want to see a really good summary of this research, you can read an article in Scientific American. I know Scientific American sounds like the <laughs> magazine, which it was, what my dad used to get every month, and he'd always read it cover to cover, and I thought yeah. it was lame as a kid, but Scientific American is great. So this uh, Melinda Wenner Moyer has a great article. You could just picture my dad, eh? Sitting back and reading totally, Scientific totally, American. Totally, totally. Yeah. National Geographic to Scientific <laughs> That's American. right. Those are his Absolutely. two subscriptions. So Melinda Wenner Moyer has a great summary of this article and kind of talks about these issues. So basically that meta-analysis did find a small increase in physical aggression among adolescents and preteens who played video games. But the amount of increase of the aggression was quite minor. And so the summary would be like, it may be a risk factor for aggression. So media violence, video games, movies, TV shows, things like that. But it's not the biggest issue that may have more to do with psychiatric issues that the kids may have, their upbringing, home life, socioeconomic status, all these things play a role. It's not the biggest kind of causal relationship. It's not the smallest, but it's probably something worth paying attention to. So there may be a small increase. And what's interesting is there's another article from a couple of years ago in Annals of Neurology. The main author was, last name was <laughs> Annals. The main anyway. author was Pujol, P-U-G-O-L. And the authors thought that maybe it's an issue of time. They found that kids who played video games for an hour a week or so, they had those responses, right? Their visual motor systems were better. They were faster at responding to things. But as soon as you got over two hours, you didn't get any improvement in your visual motor function or things like that. And then as the weekly time spent gaming went up, you can see it more associated with conduct problems, peer conflicts, reduced social interaction. And once you're up to nine hours of gaming a week, all those kids were doing pretty badly. Okay. So it follows that diminishing return. So after two hours, it's not helping in any way. That's right. Now it's getting worse. We've talked about this before correlation is not causation, right? It could be that the kids, it doesn't mean that video games are causing these kids to be antisocial. It could be kids who are more antisocial tend to be drawn towards video games. Sure, sure. But this, I mean, your question before about the addictive nature, that is a good question. And we know that dopamine, you know, dopamine is the feedback mechanism that underlies things like gambling and things like that, like dopamine rush, right? Dopamine rush, we actually all get when we're checking our email, when something new is in our inbox. I know you get annoyed when people DM you on Twitter, but other people get excited about the likes and things like that. So it's a dopamine pathway and a feel-good pathway. And we know that dopamine gets released playing video games. So in theory, video games should have addictive 
qualities, right? Our brain wants instant gratification. They like a fast-paced unpredictability. Think of a slot machine, right? And that's what people think they get from video games. So the question is, is it a real disorder or not? So there's a bit of controversy. Some people say, yes, gaming disorder is real, but the American Psychiatric Association isn't really convinced. Gaming disorder, just to be clear, you mean like alcoholism, like gaming alcoholism or whatever. There's no word. That's what gaming disorder is. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I mean. But the American Psychiatric Association isn't so sure if gaming disorder is an addiction on itself, or maybe it's just a symptom of an addictive personality, right? And so it's tough. I think there's still some research on that, but we definitely know you gave an example of kids who they spend all their free time gaming, right? Yeah. I love that addictive personality thing, huh? I have an addictive personality. That's why I read the Bible so much. That You never hear that. That's why I eat so much darn kale. Just addictive personality. It's always the crap. It's always the garbage. What are your thoughts on this then? You know, because... If I recall when I said I'm thinking of buying the kids a controller, your thoughts on it were you were a little bit hesitant. What do you think? If somebody's not in the gaming world, is it, I mean, God, 97% of people. That's like <laughs> right. But listen, and so I think we have to separate two things. Just because there have been some beneficial effects, I don't think your kids are getting any harm by not becoming addicted to video games. Of course. As you know, I still play video games. And the problem is I have to limit myself in playing them because I'll just keep getting addicted and do more and more. So I give myself parcels of time and I'll go months without playing one. Then a new one will come out. Maybe I'll play it for like a month or two and not straight, obviously, but Mm. intermittently. And then I'll put it away and I won't play it for another month or so. So I don't think that your kids need video games. I don't think they're lacking anything. I guess you could argue with COVID, a lot of kids' social interaction, especially the kids who play Fortnite, which is a lot of boys, their social interaction is gaming. And even my daughters will play these games on Messenger Kids, which is a Facebook app for messaging. They'll play little games with their friends online. That's still video gaming, right? Playing Candy Crush is still video game. That's all included in it. Well, there's one last thing that you didn't mention. And I know that anecdotal, but, and you'll frown upon this, but just based on my son's soccer team, when they got together after the first lockdown and they were able to play soccer again, or at least practice on the field, a number of them had gained weight. And these are like very active kids playing soccer three to four times a week. They didn't have that. They gained weight. And they're also all, this is where I see my son unable to communicate with his own soccer team because they're talking about Fortnite or they're talking about Minecraft. So there's a weight gain element that I see. Is there evidence of that? And gaming going hand in hand? I don't know. I think it's more a sedentary lifestyle. So it could be watching the past would be TV. Now it's watching stuff on your tablet, watching YouTube and things like that. I think it's all sedentary lifestyle. So I think if we're talking about what are the recommendations, like what should we do? There's a really good article from an online magazine called Brain and Life. It's produced by the American Academy of Neurology, of which I'm a member. And But membership is just you just apply for it. So there's no fancy thing to be a member of it, but they're great. I go to all their conferences. I subscribe to their journals. And so it's kind of an evidence-based magazine for patients with neurologic diseases. So they have just some practical tips, right? So one is pay attention to what your kids are doing, right? That is very practical. Everybody's kids are behind computers all the time. 
now with work, a lot of people doing remote learning now because of COVID, but you need to monitor their activities, see how they're doing. It's okay for your kids to look at their search history. That's okay. It's okay to have controls. So we have controls over our kids' devices. So after a certain time, you don't use it anymore because even myself and my family, we've had the issues where, oh, why do you look so sleepy today? Oh, it's because I was up till X time at night on an iPad or messaging mm. my friends. So it's okay to pay attention, be aware of what they're doing, ask them questions. And that applies to all social media, not just video games. And then establish boundaries. So like I said, set these screen time limits and let kids decide, okay? You have probably one or two hours, they say maximum screen time on weekdays, including watching TV, including messaging your friends. And then you have to have some limits and that may be verbally having your limits, or maybe like we said, having set screen time and Android and iPhone allows you to set these limits. And then make sure you talk to your kids about these things. So tell them the expectations beforehand, tell them what your experience has been with it. Like parents always ask me, are video games good? They ask me the same questions. I'm like, what can I tell you? I play video games. I have two different mm -hmm. systems for video games. I can never tell a child that video games are bad, but it's important to talk about it. Talk about these kids who they drop out of sports because they get into the video games. Talk to your kids about these examples and also know your child, right? If your child already has anger and aggression issues, maybe steer them away from video games, right? Because we saw that correlation before. Or maybe they need to be more social and maybe you want them to do it a bit more. But knowing your child and what they're going to benefit from, again, my kids can sometimes get really into things. So maybe we have to hold back a bit. And if you do think that they're getting too into something, and the way I always tell my patients for anything is, if whatever you're concerned about interferes with your daily life, then it's time mm. to do something about it. And for kids, sure. daily life is school and extracurriculars or their family interaction, right? If it's interfering with that, it's probably time for you to do something about it. So what does that mean? Do something about it. It probably means seeing a therapist, seeing a psychologist, seeing a counselor. It doesn't have to be an established diagnosis by the American Psychiatric Association for you to seek help for a behavior that's kind of maladaptive, right? Mm-hmm. I think this has been very helpful. And also it's been good for me in one way. I remember telling a friend that we, because of, as you were saying, sometimes our kids look super tired and you realize they've just been on screen so much. So we say, we're going to have a device-free weekend. Mm -hmm. Or we say, guys, this week, everybody check in their phone at 8 p.m. Okay, focus on your sleep, check in. Put your... And my friend said to me, wow, you can get away with that? I was enraged. I was like, it's my home. We pay for the phones. They're my children. Their health is my concern. Of course, I can quote unquote get away with that. Anyway, I felt like a monster when I got angry at him, but it feels like the American Neurological Association would have my back. And I think, uh, I think it's an important thing. I think parents forget many, many organizations and experts are recommending you keep track of your kids' phone usage. It's not an invasion of privacy. It is for their benefit and it is for your benefit as well. Because you just never know. You just never know. I mean, God only knows what I'd be doing on a phone if I had one at age 15, 16. You don't even want to know people. It'd be awful. And just to finish up, there's two things associated with that. Your kids will be going to those websites and will be doing all these things you don't want them to. And so your goal as a parent, in my opinion, and as a physician, isn't to have your kids avoid all these things, but it's learning how to manage them. And we can talk more in upcoming episodes about kids and social media and how they interact with it. But it's 
help them navigate these roads, right? It's completely different than when we were kids, right? But you want to help them navigate it. But forbidding things is probably not the way to go. And the other thing, when you have, especially teenagers, and you, Ali, I know you have kids of all kinds of ages, you have a grab bag, you have a variety grab bag of kids ages. Quite a grab bag. And, and yeah. so with the older kids, and my wife tells me this, and my wife, for those of you who don't know, is an adolescent medicine specialist. She's a physician and her expertise is adolescent medicine. And you have to actually negotiate with kids. And it sounds crazy. I want to put my foot down too. It's below freezing outside. You're wearing shorts outside. This is insane. Forget it. You're not doing it. But you have to negotiate because the studies show that when you compromise with kids in their teenage years, they kind of learn. That's the kids who don't rebel and don't like go behind your back. They're like, well, they realize that their parents compromise. And so they're more open to compromising and hearing other opinions as time goes on, as opposed to people mm. putting their foot down. So I think that speaks a lot of different things, but definitely with these video games, right? I don't think if you have one in your house, which is different, you guys don't have one yet in your house, but if you have mm. a system in your house, then it's compromised with your kids and teaching them to be responsible for their behavior. Sure. All right. Good. And keeping them away from Uncle Asif, who's obviously a bad influence. When in, it comes video to video games. games. Yeah. When it comes to video games. Exactly. All right, bud. Let's navigate ourselves towards the end of this episode. It's been a, it's been a good one. I think people learned some stuff. Look into code switching. If it's not something you know about, it's an incredibly interesting and I will say very important subject and something everybody should be aware of. Some people have been aware of it their whole life. It's been something that's affected them and it's part of their reality. And for those of you who haven't, you certainly should Take a moment, sometime, to educate yourself about what it's all about. And video games proceed with caution, whether it's you or with your children. So before we wrap up, Ali, anything to plug? Well, I have a book, as you always remind me, coming out October 5th. I remind myself as well. I know I have that. So that's coming out. And besides that, StandUpAli.com is my website. I'll be doing a variety of Zoom shows and things like that over the summer. Maybe some live stuff. We'll see how it all goes down. And for the podcast, just remember to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps us out. And if you want to reach out to us, it's Dr. V Comedian on Twitter and Instagram or Dr. V Comedian at gmail.com to send us a message about how you like the episode and any ideas for future ones. All right. Thanks. And thank you for that alleged letter that our Oh, our yeah. I believe that was... <laughs> Luke yeah. from Worcester, Massachusetts, I think was the, okay. so thank you, Luke. Yeah. We appreciate yeah. it. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs> see ya.